Thicker Hair. Check out this review on skin, hair, and nails from Mario Z from Heart and Soil Supplements. I have been having a lot of issues with my hair. I got a lot of blood work done in hopes of figuring out why my hair keeps getting thinner and everything came back normal. I got off all my medications, switched to an animal-based diet, and started taking skin, hair, and nails and beef organs from Heart and Soil Supplements. My hair has grown an inch in one month and my hairdresser asked me what I was doing because I had so much new growth. I'm so happy, not to mention my acne has completely cleared. This is so cool to hear from Mario on our skin, hair, and nails and beef organs from Heart and Soil Supplements. Our skin, hair, and nails has trachea and scapula cartilage. These are special types of collagen that were studied by John Pruden and help with wound healing. And in the case of Mario and many others, maybe could help with even hair regrowth on the head. Getting better nutrition, cutting out the junk will definitely help, but let us help you get organs into your diet at Heart and Soil Supplements. You can find us at heartandsoil.co, that's .co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to optimal health. Our supplements are grass-fed, grass-finished, freeze-dried, packaged in glass because plastic is bullshit. Heartandsoil.co to get more organs in your life. This week's podcast, I had a friendly debate. I'm not even sure you could really call it a debate. It's more like a friendly conversation with Thomas DeLauer. Thomas is a great guy. I'm hoping he'll come out to Costa Rica soon and do an animal-based diet and we'll get him in the sun because he looks a little pale in this video compared to me. But we had a friendly conversation about pros and cons of a ketogenic diet. If you guys follow my YouTube channel, you know that soon I'm gonna be releasing a video called Why I Quit Keto, which is a shorter version of a previous podcast I did about the dangers of a ketogenic diet. But it was cool to talk to Thomas DeLauer about the pros and the cons of keto and have some real-time conversation about all of this. So this is my animal-based versus keto friendly debate, which is how I think they all should be with Thomas. Hopefully I'll do some more of this type of thing in the future. We'll get some more keto advocates on the podcast and have some friendly conversation. As you'll hear me say in this and my other podcast on the quote-unquote dangers of keto, there are benefits to a ketogenic diet, but I don't think it's in any way, shape, or form ideal for humans long-term. And by long-term, I mean anything more than a few days. I definitely think that an animal-based diet, as I have figured out myself, and now thousands of people have followed me in this path, focus on meat and organs, either fresh or desiccated, with fruit and honey as carbohydrates, allows us to get the benefits of both worlds. It's all about satiety, as you'll hear me say in this podcast, and I don't think a ketogenic diet is the best way to control your hunger, it is getting rid of seed oils. Enjoy this one with Thomas DeLauer. All right, I wanna give a shout out to my sponsors. This podcast is free. I really enjoy doing this, and these sponsors make the podcast possible. I wanna start with, shout out to primalpastures.com. I love regenerative farms. I love grass feeding and grass finishing of these type of foods that so nourish us. Primal Pastures was founded in 2012. The sole purpose was to pursue better health through diet for themselves and their family because they were fed up with misleading labels found in the supermarkets. Their food, which includes pasture-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished beef and chicken and eggs, no antibiotics, no hormones, no growth supplements, non-GMO, soy-free, certified organic feed, always pasture-raised, which means grass feeding and grass finishing for the cows and organic feed for the chickens. No exceptions. The chickens are never provided corn in their supplemental feed. They deliver to your doorstep nationwide. They have chicken, beef, lamb, pork, including organ cuts and blends, wild caught fish, raw honey, pasture bone broth, biodynamic coffee. You guys know I think that's bullshit, but they have it. 
You can find them at primalpastures.com. New customers receive 10% off their first order with the code CARNIVOREMD. This episode is also brought to you by 8sleep. You guys know ultimate, the ultimate game changer is good sleep. It is the foundation upon everything is based. And if you're not getting good sleep, you are one of probably at least 30% of Americans who struggle with their sleep. Temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. In my experience, if I can't get my bed cold, if I don't have a mattress that helps me cool the bed, and this is where eight sleep comes in, I do not sleep well because I get so hot. But now when I'm in Austin and I've got my eight sleep pod pro cover, I am falling asleep in record time thanks to this eight sleep device. It's amazing. It's like AI for your bed. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. They pair dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress, sleep as cool as 55 or as hot as 110. What are you in Antarctica? Why would you sleep as hot as 110? Anyway, you can, if you want to, you can turn your bed into a freaking uh, thermos, into a sauna if you want. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, get overall more restful sleep. So you can find them at eightsleep.com, E-I-G-H-T, sleep.com front slash carnivoremd to check out the pod pro cover and save 150 bucks at checkout. That is eightsleep.com front slash carnivoremd. They ship within the US, Canada, and the UK. Also, this podcast is brought to you by my favorite microplastics free sea salt, Kalima sea salt. You can go to drpaulsalt.com. Give me that little landing page directly for me to get this stuff. Every year, humans dump, dump 8 million tons of plastic garbage in the ocean, which is why we don't use plastic in our bottles at hardened soil. Uh, we want to minimize the use of plastic as much as possible. That's so unfortunate because your table salt comes from the ocean. Garbage breaks down into tiny pieces, pieces called microplastics, and sea salt crystallizes around those, forming the core of most salt crystals. So you're sprinkling it on your food, and you're eating plastic bags, water bottles, and other garbage. It's just crazy. If you guys have heard me talk about this before, there are studies in animal models suggesting that microplastics are no good for fertility or hormonal function. It's not a good thing. We need more studies in humans, but I don't want this in my diet. And I love what Kalima sea salt is doing. This sea salt is hand harvested in the salt flats of Mexico by the Salineros, 100% all natural, handmade, hand harvested sea salt. It's amazing, super crunchy. You will love this. I love this stuff. You will get your first bag free at drpaulsalt.com. Check them out and try Kalima salt. Definitely, you do not want microplastics in your salt. And I appreciate what these guys are doing so much. DrPaulSalt.com for your free bag of Kalima sea salt, you guys. Last but not least, got to give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. These are the OGs in the regenerative agriculture space, grass feeding, grass finishing, no soy, no corn for their chicken. They actually do all kinds of great stuff for their chicken. Uh, at our request, both the birds and the eggs, check them out. Grass feeding, grass finishing of the beef. They have pork, they have uh, Iberico pork, which is out of this world and not as high in PUFA because they don't feed it corn and soy. And they have lamb and other animals. The stuff is delicious. The pastures are green and incredible in Bluffton, Georgia. You can find them at whiteoakpastures.com. They have a new discount for you guys. Even if you are a recurring customer of White Oak Pastures, you can use the code CARNIVORE5 to get 5% off your recurring orders and CARNIVOREMD to get 10% your first order off your first order if you're a new customer at White Oak Pastures. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. On to the podcast. So I have Dr. Paul Saladino here, a guy that really doesn't need much of an introduction. Paul, what did you have for breakfast, man? 
you know, before I went surfing this morning, I drank honey. So I had a couple of swigs of pure honey. And then I went in the ocean and I drank some salt water inadvertently. And then I came back from surfing and I ate some, I had some heart uh, cooked. I had part of a, uh, part of a, a tomahawk ribeye. I had some raw egg yolks. I had kefir, so fermented raw milk that I've made. I had a papaya. I had a pineapple. And I had a little more honey in that kefir with the raw egg yolk. So that was my breakfast. Nice. All right. So that is a pretty micronutrient dense set of foods there. Just, you will make this short because most people know who you are, but I mean, in 30 seconds, just explain who you are and what people, how people know you. I'm a traditionally trained medical doctor who went left when most people in medicine go right. I, I grew up in a medical family, so I think I was always interested in medicine. So I've just, I'm a mainstream medical doctor who got interested in asking a lot of questions and that curiosity led me to some interesting places. And I've kind of arrived at a place where I feel like uh, dietary modification is the single greatest lever that humans can use to leverage health and disease. And I think that Western medicine needs to do way more of that. Well, cool, man. Well, I've got, you know, personally, like I look to you because you, you really are a wealth of knowledge in this arena in general. And there's a lot of people on my channel, I know specifically that have been asking to have you on just because they want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And one of, so I've got a series of questions that I'm interested in too, and we can obviously rabbit hole off as we probably would. But yeah, so one of the things that, that comes to mind that I think about a lot is you got a lot of people that do, you know, whether we want to call it carnivore or predominantly animal-based, they're eating a lot of the muscle meat, but they're not necessarily getting the organ meat in. And yeah, that's one way to do it. But I've always thought that, okay, you know, you have so much in the way of muscle meat, A, you've got a fair bit of methionine, which we need to kind of have a ratio of. And if you're not looking at, say, getting organ meat in, then that balance could be off. I'm just kind of, what's your take on that? Because so many people just dive into the ribeyes and the fillets, but they don't touch what I call the good stuff. Yeah, I agree with you on this. And I've always sort of been outspoken about this. Um, I think that if you look at any hunter-gatherer culture in the world, which I think is, is a valuable um, is a valuable sort of indication for us. Like what have humans done for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of homo sapiens and pre-human pre hominids? We've always eaten the organs. And anyone who spent time with hunter-gatherers knows that they treasure the organs. I mean, I was with the Hadza in Africa last year. Um, and when we killed an animal, the first thing they did was take out the liver and they treated it like gold. They just held it with two hands. They gently placed it on a rock. They lightly cooked it and they shared it with the tribe. Not a piece of that liver went to waste. When we killed a different animal, incidentally, it was a baboon that we were hunting this time. The first thing we did was throw the baboon on the fire to singe the hair off, cut it open, and we ate the organs immediately, the heart, the liver, the kidney, the pancreas, the spleen, it was all eaten immediately. The intestines went to the dogs, but that was the only thing that went to the dogs at that moment. And what's interesting is if you look at the nutritional content, and I've always been fascinated by reverse engineering what we might think of as an optimal diet for humans based on what nutrients we know we need, which is only a fraction probably of the nutrients that are really existing. There's a lot of nutritional dark matter, a lot of vitamins and minerals and probably peptides that we don't even know about in 2022, but just looking at what we know we need and then trying to reverse engineer that and see where you'd get that in foods with the understanding that those foods must contain bioavailable 
you know, amounts of those minerals and vitamins. And we can talk about that too, plant versus animal foods and relative differences in bioavailability. But then you often end up in a place where you want to have organ meats in your diet and significant amounts of them. I mean, not exclusively liver, but a variety of things. You want to have heart. You probably want to have a little kidney. You probably want to have liver as the big three. And then you probably want to get a few other organs from time to time just to round out the nutritional content of your diet one thing that I'll ask people sometimes is where do you get your riboflavin from? And not a lot of people even know what riboflavin is. It's a B vitamin um, or why it's important, but it's a critical B vitamin that is important for methylation. There's that little enzyme in the methylation, the folate cycle called MTHFR, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And that enzyme has allosteric regulation by riboflavin, which means that if you get enough riboflavin, that enzyme works better. There's a really interesting set of papers here that those people with an MTHFR polymorphism, so a little gene uh, idiosyncrasy, it's not technically a mutation, but those people with a little bit of MTHFR um, polymorphism, a, a idiosyncrasy, a, a uniqueness to their MTHFR enzyme, if, if that MTHFR enzyme doesn't work as well, if you give them a little more riboflavin, maybe two to three milligrams a day, which is just over the RDA, then that MTHFR enzyme works great. So you need this sort of allosteric regulation from the riboflavin B vitamin. But where do people get riboflavin from? If you look it up, it's really hard to get enough riboflavin in your diet if you're not eating liver or heart. There's really no, there's not any significant amount of riboflavin in the plant kingdom. And in muscle meat, there's almost there's much, much less riboflavin than there is in liver and heart. So right there, you've got this critical B vitamin for your biochemistry, for your methylation, for your overall energy, for your mental health, right? Because methylation is critical for neurotransmitters, for detoxification, for everything. One B vitamin, this is just one example, lies at the center of that. And a lot of people become deficient in this and then they see their homocysteine rise. And so there's a lot of nuance here in terms of what uh, well-functioning human biochemistry looks like. But I think that organs are a critical part of the human diet just to fill in those nutritional gaps that are not met by muscle meat. Muscle meat's amazing, but they're just not met by muscle meat. And they're also not, not met by plants. You really can't get the same nutrients from plants that you can get from organs. So organs are this critical thing. They're always treasured historically. Get them fresh, get them desiccated, get them however you can get them, but make sure you get them in your diet. We've just lost this culturally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting with the methionine piece. If you start looking at even the longevity data, it's very interesting that when methionine levels are higher, that's when there's a problem. Now, people can take a plant-based agenda with this if they wanted to, but I look at it differently. I say, okay, well, wait a minute. It's the muscle meat that's rich in methionine, and that's where things are starting to go wrong. It's okay, as plant-based, animal-based, whatever, doesn't matter, whoever you are, if you end up having this elevated ratio of methionine to these other aminos, there's some pretty clear evidence now. Well, I shouldn't say clear. It's in rodent models now, but you're starting to see like methionine and how it turns into what's called, you know, S-adenosylmethionine, which SAM, which ultimately goes to SAMTOR, which elevates mTOR, inhibits autophagy, and essentially is stopping some of the recycling process in the beginning, in the first place. I find this very interesting because you can take one angle at it and say, okay, well, that means you need to reduce animal proteins. Or you can take another angle and you say, actually, maybe you don't need to reduce animal proteins. Maybe you need to be consuming more of the less methionine rich proteins and balance out that ratio. And that's at least my take on it. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Meth the methionine to glycine ratio is really, really important to consider. So you're absolutely right. Most plant-based advocates will point to this and say, oh, you should eat less muscle meat because they're rich in methionine. But a couple of things to consider here. Muscle meat is 2% methionine. 
and it's actually 7% glycine. So there's more glycine than methionine in muscle meat. And I think that if you really look at this carefully, different cuts of meat are going to have more and less methionine and glycine. Sometimes you get a steak and it's really chewy. That steak probably has more glycine because it has more of that collagenous connective tissue. The problem that we run into in the Western world is that most of us don't want to eat uh, a chewy steak. Now, a lot of hamburger, I suspect, is gonna be higher in glycine than like a filet mignon because it's gonna have more connective tissue. You've ground it up, you've made it more digestible. But you're absolutely right. If you look at the rodent models, the only studies that the plant-based advocates will point to are those in which methionine enrichment shorten their life. They won't tell you about the subsequent studies where they give the animals extra glycine and the lives are extended. They're totally normalized when they have enough glycine to balance the methionine. So yes, I agree with you. I think that as humans, if we really want to understand how to, how to drive the car, what the owner's manual of the human body says, it says, get organs, get connective tissue, whether it's a bone broth, get steaks, get some sort of meat that's kind of chewy, whether it's ground beef, get some collagen rich uh, meat from an animal, which is gonna have much more glycine and much less methionine, and don't just rely on super high methionine foods. Now, I think most people are fine on this, unless they're just eating the most tender, no collagen in their steak at all, no connective tissue in their steak at all. Um, but for me, this is an indication that yeah, organs are important, connective tissue is important, bone broth is important, get some glycine in your diet. Again, our ancestors always would have done this. They're not just gonna eat the choice cuts of that animal, they're gonna eat the chewy bits. They're gonna pull that, that, that piece of muscle off the bone, it's gonna have a little tendon attached, they're gonna eat the whole thing. But you know what else happens a lot, and I see this too frequently, I'll be out with friends, and sometimes my friends will cut the fat off the steak or they'll cut the chewy bits off the steak and they don't eat them. And I give those to me. <laughs> those are the pieces that are collagen rich that are higher in glycine. We should be eating all of it. And if you do that, you will probably do a pretty good job of balancing the methionine and the glycine. And so it's not that methionine is bad in and of itself. It's just that if you don't get enough glycine in your diet, and we know where glycine is, it's in those connective tissues and probably a little more in the organs, which have connective tissues built into them, um, you're going to be fine. That's interesting. That's a really cool way of putting it. Yeah. And it's all something that's, I don't want to say relatively new to me, but I guess it is relatively over the last six months, I've become increasingly interested in that. And uh, yeah, it's quite intriguing and kind of moving in. Cause I want to cover a lot of ground. Like you know so much and you're so well-versed in this. And I want to touch on something that it's been very interesting to see. You've sort of taken a turn away from traditional keto, so to speak. And I don't want to say taking a turn, but you've become a little bit more I like to use the word agitator, but that's that's <laughs> in a positive way, right? And I've sort of taken a little bit of a similar stance in in other ways, like I've gone against the grain of the traditional maybe ketogenic mindset that's been talked about for the last at least four or five years as it gained popularity. Uh, and you just did a video a couple of days ago as of us recording this. Just you know, quickly, like what is your stance now uh, towards the ketogenic diet? And I say that in air quotes because I know that you're not anti ketogenic state, but there might be some problems with the ketogenic diet per se. Yeah. So this is interesting. I actually just released, um, so we're going to co-release this on both of our podcasts, but my podcast is called Fundamental Health. And I just released another video about keto. And when I was researching that video, I want to start out with the benefits of keto. So clearly a ketogenic diet or a state of ketosis for humans has benefits in intractable epilepsy. And I was quite interested to see that when you drink a ketone ester, uh, a ketone salt, or in diabetics who go into ketosis nutritionally, ghrelin is lowered. So you see this hunger hormone go down. 
And I find that really interesting because I think that for anyone to lose weight sustainably, which is probably the single greatest problem facing our, our American westernized population is obesity. For anyone to lose weight sustainably, and that will result in so many health improvements, the, the appetite must be controlled. There are so many diets out there, quote unquote diets, that do not control hunger. And this is my huge beef, quote unquote, with them. I'm sorry for the bad pun. It was unintentional. Uh, this, is my, this is my objection to those diets. So if it fits your macros, counting calories, calorie restriction, these are akin to a calorie restricted prison or imprisonment in my opinion. And the human brain and the human body has uh, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, if you include pre-hominid evolution, that is urging us to break out of that calorie-restricted prison. So we must control hunger and be satiated in a way of eating if we are going to lose weight sustainably. So you can lose weight counting calories and calorie restricting, but it crushes your hormones and you end up with lots of problems long-term. So I like that the ketogenic, a ketogenic state in humans achieved via nutritional ketosis does that. But I take it a step further and I think, okay, is it the absence of ketones that is causing most of the population to be hungry? And I don't think it is. I think it's problems with seed oils messing with our cannabinoid receptors and our hypothalamus and our brain. And so this is something I would love to debate, obesity pundits and people that think about this. I would love to debate them on this because there's lots of theories about what causes us to get fat. But if you really look at the research, seed oils, things like corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, grapeseed, they have this fatty acid, right? This is an 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. I'm sure your audience is familiar with linoleic acid. When you give linoleic acid to animals, you see two cannabinoids. You see anandamide and 2-AG increase in the brains of those animals, and that leads to hunger, okay? Because those cannabinoids are going to bind to the CB1, the cannabinoid 1 receptor in the brain. And that makes us hungry. Anyone that's ever smoked marijuana or taken an edible knows that if you put exogenous cannabinoids in your body, you are going to be hungry. Conversely, and I talked about this with Tucker Goodrich on my podcast, when you give humans, this has been done in Europe, this drug was never approved in the United States, a drug called Ramonabant. It's an inverse agonist at the CB1 receptor, which means it, it technically binds to it, but it blocks it. So it blocks that CB1 receptor. So you can give them this Ramona band and it helps with hunger. So it really helps them lose weight. This would be a miracle drug for diabetes if it didn't cause people to commit suicide more because it turns out we need cannabinoid receptor signaling in the brain to have a, uh, a euthymic mood. So, but the mechanism is interesting. If you block cannabinoid receptors, people become less hungry. If you activate cannabinoid receptors, they become more hungry. So my suspicion is that the major, um, the major driver of satiety disorders in the United States leading people to overeat is junk food. You know, is junk food which contains these seed oils, which are, people don't even know it, but they're just tickling these cannabinoid receptors all the time in their brain. And they never really feel quite full, probably because their diet is also nutrient poor. So when it comes, this is a long-winded answer to your question. So when it comes to a ketogenic diet, um, that's one of the things that I think we need to consider that there are better ways, in my opinion, to address the hunger. And I think if you cut out seed oils and you cut out processed sugars from your diet, you can eat a diet um, like meat, organs with fruit and even honey, like I do, and not be hungry. A lot of your listeners might not believe me, but it's true. It's just, it's absolutely true. They need to try it. And then if you go further down the rabbit hole, we can talk about it. Um, I have concerns 
about the absence of carbohydrates in the human diet. And so one of the cool things for me to learn over the last few years, as I transitioned from a strict carnivore diet of just meat and organs and fat to an animal-based diet is what I've termed it with fruit and honey, some carbohydrates, is that these carbohydrates appear to have some beneficial roles in the human body. I'm sure you're aware of this, right? So postprandial insulin signaling gets a really bad rap, a really bad rap in a lot of keto communities, but it's so good for us. We need it at the level of the kidneys to hang on to sodium and potassium and other electrolytes. We need it to signal to the liver to make enough glutathione, this master antioxidant in the human body. We know that insulin signaling increases glutathione. This has been shown in ICU patients. We know that we need insulin at some level to keep sex hormone binding globulin down so we have free hormones, especially testosterone for men. We know that we need some insulin signaling for our thyroid hormones to be normal. And we know that in athletes, if you give them some carbohydrates, their recovery post-exercise is better in terms of the free testosterone to cortisol ratio and in terms of immune function. So it was interesting for me because I went down this carnivore rabbit hole and had a lot of benefits on a ketogenic, you know, a zero carb, quote unquote, carnivore diet in terms of my eczema. But then I ran into problems and had to keep doing research. And I found all these other things saying, wow, carbohydrates probably have some benefits for humans too. So I'm curious, you know, yeah. what do you think of that stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, you probably saw the video I did about three or four months ago that said, I'm, you know, I'm quitting keto, although it wasn't entirely quitting keto. It was very similar to how you appraise it, right? I mean, it's let, let's be frank here, and sometimes you got to get a click. But at the end of the day, what I had learned is that balance, balance is the wrong word. But I found that, okay, I'd been fairly strict ketogenic when I first lost all my weight for like three years, like strict, strict, strict. And then I kind of started dabbling more into some carb cycling with the lion's share of the time being ketogenic. And my carbs almost always were coming from fruit. I've always just been that way. I've never been a big grain guy. And I don't really, candidly, don't even have a lot to say on it other than the fact that I just don't feel great when I eat them, right? So for me, it's always been a fruit thing. And so for me, I started realizing, okay, there is some benefit here. And it's not to the degree that you've been looking at. And I find that very fascinating because obviously insulin is required. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't required. And this demonization of insulin is going to be a problem. And right now I'm noticing, as far as content is concerned, almost a sick obsession with blood glucose. Uh, like it's just, and I get it. People are interested in it. People are interested in it. And that's great. They should be to a certain degree, but these obsessions are going to take us too far. Um, you know, because other things we, we have to look at overeating in general, okay? Whether it's a saturated fat, a polyunsaturated fat, a fruit, a sugar, overeating in general is the problem, uh, you know, and it's like, no matter how you get there, that is where we start running. You, know, you start looking at hepatic triglycerides. We can point our fingers at different micronutrients. We can point our fingers at different macronutrients, but overeating is the problem. Okay. And when I start looking at a ketogenic diet, for me, I still balance my ketogenic state on and off. But for me, a ketogenic state is treated as it should be for me, which is a hormetic stressor. I do it and I look at the train low studies, you know, the sleep low studies, and that's how I look at my ketogenic diet. And I look at it in the sense of, okay, if I want to train in a very deprived state, I can put myself in a caloric box and put myself in this extreme deficit, or I can get a similar hormetic stressor by putting myself deep into a ketogenic state, training at high intensities. And then interestingly enough, when I do introduce carbohydrates or fruit back into the picture more aggressively, I actually feel like I'm getting dual benefit. Like I'm almost getting the, that metabolic flexibility that I want. 
So when I released that video, people were expecting me to be like, oh, I'm doing a complete 180 on the ketogenic diet. No, I still think the presence of ketones, histone deacetylase inhibition, all of that is a phenomenal thing that humans and pretty much all mammals could benefit from. And we're designed to have periods of time where we're in there. We're also designed to have periods of time when we're not. And I think it's just, it was hard for people to hear me say that, right? Because I had so much success with the ketogenic diet, but I'm impressed to see how much you've grown and willing to admit not even say admit, because you were never admitting you're wrong, but you're admitting your growth, right? And I've had to do the same thing. I think it's okay for us to admit we were wrong, but it certainly feels a little easier to be like, oh, I'm growing. But I mean, it's just, you know, like, <laughs> it's okay to be humble. And I don't think, um, I certainly don't have, have it all figured out or have all the answers. I just want to spur conversation and curiosity. But um, yeah, totally. I agree with you 100% when it comes to the obsession that I see now in the world regarding blood glucose. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but I'll just comment on what you were saying first. So uh, I think that this is a really interesting point that you're bringing up. And I, I think that if people want to use a ketogenic diet as a metabolic stressor, as like a hormetic stressor, and I think it, it appears, it, you can make a reasonable argument as you do that that fits that definition. I, I would recommend that they just check their free testosterone to cortisol ratio, um, because if that starts to decline long-term, um, then I think you've gone too far, right? So just like you do, I've heard about this. Like, so apparently in the, uh, the elite camps for the Olympics, whether it's like Eastern Bloc countries or maybe even in the West, I've heard that in the morning, the first thing they would do is check that free testosterone to cortisol ratio because testosterone is, is diurnal for, for males, probably for females too, I would imagine. It peaks in the morning. So you can check this in the morning. It's, it's, it's more difficult than, than just checking a finger stick, unfortunately. Maybe in the future we'll have this technology, but understanding that um, if your free testosterone to cortisol ratio is going down, you are overtraining. And there's a lot of things that can go in that stress bucket, right? It can be life stress, lack of sleep, poor nutrients, not enough sun, um, or you know, excess ketogenic diets could push you there. And we see that in athletes, that when you give them carbohydrates, there's an improvement in that free testosterone to cortisol ratio. So I think that if we want to use hormetic stressors, we I think that my recommendation to humans would be have some sort, and this is a little challenging, but do be honest with yourself and have some sort of an objective metric so that you know when you've gone too far with those. Because I think that there's a lot of people that go too far with fasting. There's a lot of people that go too far with intermittent fasting. And there's a lot of people that go too far with ketogenic states. This is just my perspective. And they, they will end up um, on the losing end of that, of that slide um, and ultimately yes. sacrificing performance. So, um, and then if yeah, you think I'm about, so glad to say that, yeah. good, cool. And then if you yeah, think no, about, it's, it's, I'm going to interrupt for a second. Cause I want to make sure we don't hold that thought. Cause I don't want to break your flow, yeah. but the intermittent yeah. fasting piece is so important because I have tried beating this into the ground, but unfortunately algorithms don't always let everyone hear that message. And, you know, you stressed, especially intermittent fasting too much people, when they start intermittent fasting, especially every other, every day. I mean, that's, that's when we can have a basic energy dynamics discussion, right? Like at that rate, you probably are just bringing your basal metab excuse me, metabolic rate down, right? You are, you're skipping breakfast, but you're eating the, doing the same thing every day. All you are doing is just shrinking your allotment of calories. And then you are putting yourself in that box where it's very difficult to break away from that. And I always caution people that just like I mentioned the ketogenic diet, like fasting. And then the unfortunate thing is I get about this because fasting catches all this from people, right? Like so many people in different crowds and different camps will totally, for lack of a better term, on intermittent fasting, 
and throw it under the bus because of this. And honestly, in a lot of ways, rightfully so, because people treat fasting as this thing to do all the time when it should still be a stressor. It should still be the anomaly to the rest of your diet. And that was actually one of the questions that I had for you later on. We'll get to that. It was like, do you still do some fasting and stuff? But we'll, we'll cover that bridge when we get there. I just wanted to make sure I highlighted that because my audience specifically, I think, needs to hear that. Yeah. Like I said, um, I think we should, I think people should be getting morning testosterones a lot often, a lot more often than they are. Um, just some metric of stress, whether it's like a morning cortisol or a morning testosterone or both, that'll keep you honest. Because if you're doing tons of intermittent fasting and you see that testosterone dropping as a male or even as a female, that's not a good thing. And there are studies that we can loop back to, but there are studies, I believe it's four weeks of a 16, eight window. They did see some decline in the testosterone for males. So it's like, at what point are we like, what's the whole, what's the whole mission here? It's to live as well as we can. And when you start to see this, this important hormone for men declining, you can make an argument that you've gone too far. Um, going back to the glucose thing, I, I've heard, um, I would say very well-respected physicians, one physician in particular, um, say, I'm paraphrasing him, but, uh, he's basically said, um, if I put a continuous glucose monitor on you, uh, you can eat whatever you want. As long as your blood sugar doesn't go above a certain threshold, he has set the average blood sugar at 85 with a standard deviation of 10. So that, and that, that to me, is just like, uh, my, my hair stands on end. I'm just like smoke comes out of my ears. And I think, what are you talking about? There's no attention to dietary quality there. And that statement assumes that there's good data for a predictive value for glycemic index, glycemic load of our foods, which there isn't. I mean, I've got an abstract pulled up here. It's a 2018 study, the relevance of glycemic index and glycemic load for body weight, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Uh, the last, last author is Joanne Slavin. And the, the conclusion is that GI and GL, so glycemic index, glycemic load, have essentially no predictive value when it comes to cardiovascular disease or diabetes. So uh, I'll hear people say this all the time. Oh, my blood sugar went to 140 and they just get, they're like, oh my God, that's like a volcano. It's just so high. It's like 140 milligrams per deciliter is not, you know, that's not a sinful blood sugar for humans. That's a normal physiologic blood sugar that a lot of humans should be getting after their meal. And so this, I, this, this obsession with keeping your blood sugar below 110 as a, as a peak or a, an average of 85 with a standard deviation of 10 milligrams per deciliter, for me, this hurts people because it's much too tight control. It doesn't allow you to get that postprandial insulin uh, spike, which you need, which will be accompanied by a glucose peak after your meal. That's fine. But understand that you can look at a continuous glucose monitor and calculate glucose area under the curve, which would be some indication of insulin area under the curve. And this, this physician says that he wants to minimize insulin area under the curve. And I'm thinking that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, insulin area under the curve is not what is causing metabolic uh, dysfunction and, and insulin resistance, in my opinion. I also think there's a real misunderstanding in the communities, in the nutrition community, that about the prevalence of insulin-induced insulin resistance. I think it's extremely rare in humans, and we don't need to be as strict about, about absolute levels of insulin or insulin area under the curve uh, that, we're, uh, that we're sort of abstracting from glucose area under the curve. So 
In my strong belief, it's fine to have a postprandial blood sugar of 140 because if you are insulin sensitive and if you have a continuous glucose monitor, what you will see is the blood sugar goes up and it comes right back down. And the glucose area under the curve is very small. <laughs> and so that to me, this is there's not enough understanding of this. And sort of wrapped into that is what I was talking about earlier, unless there is a central appreciation and focus on food quality, I don't think any diet is going to lead to optimal health for humans long-term. And to be able to say to someone or to say, I don't care what you eat, just keep your blood sugar below this level is, is in my opinion. Like there's no yeah, focus yeah, on that's... nutrients, no focus on food quality. And this gets right back to the place where, uh, you know, the calories in calories out crowd um, says, but essentially that, that statement is suggesting that all calories are created equally. And we know that if you look at just within fat molecules, whether you have an 18 carbon saturated fat, which is stearic acid, which we can talk about, or an 18 carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fat, those do massively different things in the human body. Those are both 18 carbons, right? They're the exact same amount of carbons. They're, the, they're very similar molecules. They're just different by three or two double bonds, you know? And so yeah. that's all that's different. It's just a, a few electrons in different orbitals on the molecule, but they do massively different things in the body because these fat molecules we know essentially have hormone-like effects in the human body with the polyunsaturated fat being linoleic acid, saturated fat being stearic acid, doing completely opposite things in our metabolism. So I think that as a broken record, I will say, we must focus on food quality um, in any sort of dietary approach as a human. And my goal with what I'm helping people understand is that if you can get to a place where you can eat as much of a certain set of foods as you want, you're going to win. And that, I believe that if you select those foods properly, this is a pretty bold statement, if you select those foods properly by looking at food quality and the absence of things that will destroy your metabolism or break it, you can eat as much of those foods as you want, satiety will come and you will lose weight and become metabolically healthy and life is good. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of putting it. And to give people something say, pragmatic, let's say people are wearing a CGM and they do want to monitor these things. You mentioned okay, that postprandial spike in glucose is a, obviously a natural response, postprandial spike in insulin, natural response. So do you think people should look at maybe what happens two hours after they eat a meal? And if they're still elevated and having issues then, then there might be something to look at. Because like for me, for example, I'll use, you know, anecdotally, like I spike pretty high and a lot of it, you know, I, I generally do. Now I have a long history of ketogenic diet and a long history of intermittent fasting and prolonged fasting where I probably have a degree of peripheral insulin resistance that I'm not tripping out about, right? And uh, I, I just don't get the concern. My fasting glucose is around 100. It's not the end of the world for me, right? And I try to explain that. Uh, when I eat carbohydrates, I might spike to 140, but I do generally come down pretty quick. Now, if I spiked to 140, and I'm asking you, and this isn't, this isn't necessarily uh, circling back to what I believe or not, I'm just curious. If I checked two hours later and I was still at 140, then it sounds like that might be an issue. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things wrapped up in there that we should talk about, which is physiologic insulin resistance, which happens in a low carbohydrate state, um, which is a really interesting discussion. And it's normal human physiology, quote unquote normal. Um, and it gets often conflated with pathological insulin resistance, which are completely different processes. Um, high insulin versus low insulin in those two states. Um, and so, but if you're talking about your CGM, yeah, like elevation of your blood sugar after two hours is a problem. And 
I love continuous glucose monitors, but there's a much easier way to get at this issue, which is just get a freaking fasting insulin. Uh, I think that people should get fasting <laughs> yeah. insulin every month. <laughs> and in my opinion, this single blood test, which probably costs $35, would change the medical system, would change the horizon, would change the landscape. I mean, it should be less than five micro IU per ml. It should probably be less than three. Uh, mine was recently 2.4 micro IU per ml, and I eat between 250 and 300 grams of carbohydrates a day. So if anyone believes, wow. yeah, if anyone believes, it's just, this is my N of one, but I've seen it over and over and over. It's, I've seen it, all the people I work with, it doesn't, it doesn't work like this, right? So carbohydrates do not cause insulin resistance. Um, not all carbohydrates are created equally, but um, a fasting insulin should be low. You can get a sense of how your fasting insulin is gonna be by using a CGM. And I think these two go hand in hand. They really complete the picture. Looking the phenotype, so the actual way that your postprandial glucose looks can also indicate uh, insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance. And the pattern that you want to see in your insulin is a spike excuse me, the pattern you want to see in your glucose, if you're eating carbohydrates in a meal, is a spike up to whatever, 130, 140, probably even 150 is fine. When you get to 180 or 200, that's pathological, but 140, 145, no big deal. And then a quick return to baseline within an hour preferentially. And that baseline can be something that you understand when you're wearing a CGM. Um, I'll tell you that when I was doing a carnivore diet that was strict, my baseline fasting blood sugar was pretty close to yours, around high 90s, 95, 96. But when I added carbohydrates back to my diet, my fasting blood sugar went down. It's now in the it's high- Same here, same here. What's that? Same here. Same here. Yeah. So my fasting blood sugar is in the 70s now or low 80s. And so let's talk about that other piece of it because I want your audience to understand this and mine as well, that if you are doing a ketogenic diet, if you are low carb and you reintroduce carbohydrates for probably 72 hours, you are going to have an exaggerated response of your blood sugar because your body is refusing carbohydrates at the level of the muscle. This is why women who go low carb in pregnancy will fail you know, a gestational diabetes test. And in fact, if you, you can fail uh, you know, a gestational diabetes test as a woman if she even fasts for probably 16 hours sometimes. So it depends on the state of the body. And what's happening here is really interesting physiology. You and I had chatted a little bit about this offline before the podcast, but our fat cells determine the insulin sensitivity of our muscles. The fat cells are the director. They're the conductor at the front of the train. And when the fat cells release certain lipokines, which are like hormones that are lipids into the blood, they signal to the muscles to become insulin resistant. But that term insulin resistant is confusing because we say insulin resistance is diabetes, and then we say insulin resistance happens in keto, and they're very different states. This one is physiologic insulin resistance, not to be confused with pathologic insulin resistance. So in this state, when you fast, say you and I are out hunting and we're just gonna eat what we kill and we're not eating for a few days, this is normal human physiology, just like our ancestors would have experienced, we don't have any fruit right now. We didn't find any beehives with honey. We didn't even find any protein from an animal. We're going into this fasting state. Our, our uh, adipocytes, so our fat cells, are going to release lipokines into the blood that are going to tell the muscles, become insulin resistant, refuse glucose, because we need to spare that for the brain, the testes, the adrenals, et cetera, in the blood. Now, 
that physiology gets going, it has momentum. Um, we know that when you're burning fat and doing beta oxidation, there is a tendency to want to continue doing that. Many of the products of that citrate, et cetera, sort of inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase and the other side of the biochemistry and vice versa. It's also true when you're doing glucose-based metabolism, there are intermediates that inhibit beta oxidation and carnitine palmitoyl transferase at the level of mitochondria. So our body is going to stay. There's like, you know, something in motion tends to stay in motion. It takes your body a little bit of time to adjust, to come back online and say, oh, I've got some fruit. Give me a couple of days. I'm back online. And those in your case who are doing carnivore or keto, you'll come back online. There's no pathologic insulin resistance there, um, meaning that your muscles will accept glucose in a few days. <laughs> so if you eat yep. glucose for a few days, you'll start to see that postprandial blood sugar go down and down and down. But the first time that somebody goes back. Um, unfortunately, I didn't record this moment in my history, but I'm sure this happened, that after two years of a strict carnivore diet, the first time I took two tablespoons of honey, I'm pretty sure my blood sugar went way high. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's okay. And then I kept doing it and your body adjusts. Did all that make sense? Oh yeah, no, in fact, I've talked about the same thing and I oh. use an analogy of, of railroad tracks. When you reach a Y in the railroad tracks, Okay, let's say left is uh, beta oxidation or fat utilization, right is glucose. Um, if you've been going down the fat path all the time, and there's the little lever you would pull, the conductor would jump out, pull the lever, and to go to the glucose side. Well, if you don't use that lever for a while, it gets rusty, right? So that conductor's got to jump off, and he's got to pull that lever, and he's got to get some WD-40, and he's got to get that get that lever switching, and then eventually. If that lever is switched back and forth enough, it doesn't need the deep WD-40 anymore. You're switching that lever back and forth. You can start kind of, and in essence, that's somewhat describes metabolic flexibility to a certain degree, but it's the same thing. It's that glucose intolerance that, that people get freaked out about with keto where they say, oh my gosh, I'm going to make myself glucose intolerant. That is a temporary thing and exactly what your body should be doing. And basically all this, you're just getting the rust off the railroad tracks a little bit. You go down that pathway for a little bit and it's so easy because if people are sensitive when they've been doing a ketogenic diet for a long time, then all of a sudden they have carbohydrates and sometimes they don't feel so great. They tend to think like, oh my gosh, the carbohydrates are the problem. It, no. It, I mean, in essence, acutely, they're the quote unquote problem, but it's not an actual problem. Yes, you are feeling weird because maybe you're not used to having your glucose spike this high, but give it a couple of days and everything is going to adapt. Now, the question that I have for you, this is um, a genuine question. Does this also account for like insulin independent glucose uptake, like for like via exercise and things like that, that does not require insulin? Uh, like does, does it affect that peripheral insulin resistance affect the glucose uptake when it is independent of insulin? I don't think so. I'd have to do more research on it, but you're looking at different transporters. Although there is also this, you know, it's using an insulin receptor at the level of the cells. And so that lipokine we exactly. talked about is palmitate. And this is interesting because um, unfortunately, uh, this is pretty well-established science. And again, plant-based advocates will sometimes use this to say that saturated fats from animals are not good for humans because palmitate can be found in uh, animal foods. Palmitate is a 16-carbon saturated fat relative to stearic acid, which is an 18-carbon saturated fat. But it's very important to understand that when you eat palmitate in your diet, it doesn't raise your serum palmitate. So this is where I think plant-based advocates go a little awry. They go a little astray. They think, oh, it's the same, but this isn't true. And what we know is that in situations of insulin resistance, whether it's physiologic or pathological, the non-esterified fatty acids in the blood go up. 
And this is a normal ketosis physiology, but it's also physiology that happens in a pathological insulin resistant state like diabetes. But the difference between them is that insulin is high in one state, pathological diabetes, and low in the other state, which is the ketogenic state or the fasting state. So the difference here is that the palmitate is coming from the fat cells, but if you eat a bunch of saturated fat from muscle meat, that's not, or from like a ribeye with a bunch of palmitate in it, it's not gonna raise your palmitate and make you insulin resistant at the level of the muscles. It doesn't work that way. Your fat is smarter than that. Your fat cells are incredible. They have mostly fat in them, but they also have a nucleus and all this DNA and mitochondria. They're pretty smart cells. So that's important to understand. But at the level of exercise, I'm not sure. I'd have to go dig more into that. Yeah. That's interesting on the palmitate thing. Cause I think where people might get confused too is again, we come back to the, the situation of overeating, right? Like if you overeat carbohydrates, those will also convert into serum palmitate, right? So it's, it's the same kind of thing like this. I mean, I'm saying this, that if you overeat saturated fat, I don't know if it necessarily reflects palmitate, but it, there's evidence that shows, okay, if you, again, operative word, overeat, overeat saturated fat, it can lead to storage of hepatic triglycerides. Okay, well, you take that same discussion, you look, same thing is applicable for overeating carbohydrates. So when I look at that, I say, okay, we can get potentially nuancy with percentage points, but it looks like overeating is the problem. <laughs> yes. And wrapped into those discussions is that this is where we get, we need to get really technical or at least really precise because we almost need to pull up a study and be like, what are they feeding these humans, right? So yeah, looping true, back true. to what I said earlier, all calories are not created equally. Um, and overeating sucrose in the form of Coca-Cola is different than quote unquote overeating fruit. I don't really like Very studies. True. I don't really like studies where they force people to overeat because I think it should either be, it should just be ad lib. I don't know why we don't do more nutritional studies ad lib. Um, it doesn't really make sense to tell people like, we're going to set a caloric level for you. And until you get to this caloric level, you have to keep eating. Cause that doesn't really mimic what happens in the natural world. If you give somebody an ad lib, uh, freedom, then if they're hungry, they're going to eat. But if they're full, they're going to stop. The body has these clear signals to stop. So I like that you keep coming back to this overeating. And I want to reiterate what I said earlier, that I think that um, the reason most people overeat is because disordered brain signaling related to seed oils primarily, but also probably processed sugar. So I, I, this is probably a good time to bring up this point as well. When I was writing my book, The Carnivore Code, I had only seen literature that showed that fructose was bad for humans. And then I had to broaden my horizon a little bit later. And it was really interesting to see that. And I didn't really believe this when I first saw it, but as I've learned about it more and found more and more studies that show this, it's quite fascinating that it, like nutritional reductionism is very misleading. And just because honey contains fructose or fruit contains fructose, those do not perform the same physiologically in animal or human models as isolated fructose or fructose and glucose disaccharide as sucrose in human studies. And this to me is so interesting. And I don't think we fully understand what's going on here. It's probably other information in the fruit. People like Robert Lustig think it's fiber. I don't think it's fiber because I know that when you eat honey, it doesn't make you insulin resistant if that honey actually is real honey, quote unquote, and not just a sugar solution, uh, like a sham honey, which has a very different effect on humans. So you don't need to have fiber in the food, though fruit has fiber. So something is different in human physiology and in animal physiology. I mean, there's a really striking study in rats that if you give them sucrose, they get liver fat, they get oxidation, they get oxidative stress, and you give them honey and it protects against those things. So like 
what, honey is freaking magical? It's like, well, I guess so. Like there's some sort of evolutionary programming and whether it's nitric oxide signaling, which is possible, or whether it's something having to do with endothelial health or just something in the liver seems to shift because there's something going on with metabolism. I don't think anybody's really figured out here, but there's more information is the, the, the only way I can express it now in honey, in fruit, a whole food matrix carbohydrate, even if it's a simple carbohydrate that contains fructose, doesn't appear to be harmful for humans metabolically, whereas a simple carbohydrate in isolation, sucrose, Coca-Cola, fake honey, these do in both human and animal models. So I want people to understand that because oftentimes people will say, um, honey is the same as Coca-Cola. And that's just not the case. It's just, that's been disproven like multiple times. Um, though I think people have done experiments where they look again, uh, slightly myopically at their postprandial blood glucose response and say, hey, if I drink 25 grams of carbohydrates from Coca-Cola, I get the same 25 gram response as I do from honey, which would be like a tablespoon and a half of honey. But what's happening metabolically is not always reflected in that postprandial glucose response. And I think that that's, again, leading us down the slippery slope of overfocus on the postprandial glucose level as the absolute metric when it doesn't have a good predictive value in the studies we've done. Yeah, well, we did the same thing with a ketogenic diet too, like this myopic focus on a ketone level where it's like yes. at the end of the day, like I've always, I've been pretty, pretty outspoken and pissed a few people off by saying, don't chase ketones, chase results, right? Like I, I just, like, I don't care if your ketones are at 0 0.1 or they're at 4.0. I, I really don't care. Like, I mean, unless you were specifically going for something um, cognitive or you're going for something very specific, then you know, and, and I want to get something pragmatic because I'm actually curious too. And I know people that are watching and listening would be curious. What do, what should people look for when they're choosing a honey? Cause I feel like that's very important because there's a lot of garbage honey out there. Yeah. So a couple of things come up here. You definitely want the honey to be raw and there are studies with honey. And this was really interesting. So I found a series of studies with honey that looked at nitric oxide precursors and nitric oxide metabolites. And when the honey is heated, the amount of nitric oxide production in the human body goes down. You see the metabolites go down. So you don't want the honey to be, it has to be raw, first of all. Second of all, you really want to understand where the honey is from. Preferably the honey is organic, which means they're not gonna use pesticides and things in and around the hive. But this gets pretty hard because we live in an increasingly toxic world. I don't wanna make recommendations for people that are un unattainable, but there's very few honeys in the United States that are certified glyphosate free. But I think increasingly we're starting to ask questions about this pesticide Roundup and you think, okay, a bee can move, I think the diameter is like six miles. So a radius of three miles from the hive. So if there's any glyphosate crops within six mile diameter, three mile radius of that hive, then that bee is gonna bring back glyphosate to the honey and you don't know how much glyphosate is in the honey. Again, I don't want it to be unattainable for people, but if you can get honey from a place that's remote, then you're gonna do better with the honey. If people look online, there's like one honey that's certified uh, glyphosate free. And I hope more honeys will start testing for glyphosate. Um, here in Costa Rica, um, in case people didn't catch that at the beginning, that's why I'm ridiculously tan. Um, they, uh, I know you make me look so pale and I'm, <laughs> I'm in Tahoe at altitude and I'm like, I'm pretty dark right now. <laughs> I'm just like, I live at the equator, man. I am ridiculously tan. Um, so here in Costa Rica, I try and get local honey from places like there's not a lot of industry and farming around where I live now. Um, so that's, that's 
helpful for me too. So that's how you select a good honey. But I do think there's interesting studies with honey, with cardiovascular disease, with uh, actual oral uh, mucositis, with cavities. Honey's like protective against cavities. Um, honey's really an interesting thing. There's a really, one of the more interesting studies I found about honey, I'll just say this, is that though honey increases A1C slightly in diabetics, it improves insulin sensitivity. So you can give honey to a diabetic and their blood sugar is gonna go up a little bit, which most diabetics rightly so are um, a little bit apprehensive regarding, but it improves their metrics of insulin sensitivity. So that's interesting. I'm not saying diabetics should be doing spoonfuls of honey. There's probably better things, but a little bit of honey for a diabetic may actually be beneficial. I think again, the diabetic needs to get out the processed sugars and the seed oils primarily. I, yeah, I found very interesting stuff just anecdotally when I have a couple of tablespoons of honey and it kind of echoes what you said. And this is again, purely anecdotal, but like if I have two or three tablespoons of honey, I'm satiated. And like, so I mean, it's really odd. Uh, and you would, you would think again, based upon what we see in content and stuff these days that you'd, you'd spike and then you'd crash and you'd invariably be hungry again. I actually satiated for a few hours and I'm a pretty big metabolic machine. I, I move a lot. I work out a lot. I carry a lot of muscle. So my body does demand a decent amount of fuel. So I usually expect like if I were to have that happen, that it would come on like a freight train, but it, it doesn't. So I find that interesting. I don't have an explanation as to why. And it sounds like you, you don't really either, but it's like, there's some, there's just something going on. So yes, yeah, so I am a, I'm a big advocate for honey as well. And it's just pretty interesting. And I want to make sure, cause like there's, we have time to cover some, some other things too. And like, this is one of the questions that I had for you is, you know, the, the nuancey stuff with insulin sensitivity uh, and how you'd mentioned something over text, which I found interesting about, uh, insulin sensitivity on a ketogenic diet is not necessarily a good thing. Um, it, because it's kind of counterintuitive. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not that insulin sensitivity outside of a lower carb diet is necessarily a bad thing, but I know it kind of continues on what we were talking about, about, you know, physiological insulin resistance, but can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. Let me pull up the paper and I'll at least read the abstract for people so they can know what study we're talking about. Give me one second here. So, there's a, this is actually gets back to the seed oil discussion. And I think this will be very interesting for your audience because, um, because of how insightful it is regarding really the dangers of seed oils in humans. I think this is actually one of the better studies that often gets misinterpreted. So the title of the study for people who want to see the abstract is differential effects, differential metabolic effects of saturated versus polyunsaturated fats in ketogenic diets. Now, some people will point to this study and say, look, saturated fat makes people less insulin sensitive in a ketogenic diet, which is true and a good thing because that is normal physiology. When you are in a ketogenic state, your adipocytes are releasing palmitate. They are signaling to the periphery that they should become insulin resistant. This is physiologic insulin resistance. This is glucose sparing. This is how your body stays alive when you are surviving in the wilderness, when you are doing your fast, okay? But what happens in this study is that they give people saturated fat and they give them seed oil. They give them polyunsaturated fat. And what they find is when they give them polyunsaturated fat, that normal physiology, the proper human physiology of physiologic insulin resistance is abrogated, meaning people become more insulin sensitive when they should be insulin resistant on a ketogenic diet. Again, I'll, I'll repeat that so people understand that. So your body is creating this, this proper physiologic state of sparing glucose at the level of the muscles. That's primarily what you're seeing when you're talking about insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance. That's what they're looking at in this study because insulin, uh, because the glucose disposal, the major 
place is going to be the muscles, also the liver, but mostly the muscles. So you should be insulin resistant on a ketogenic diet. If you are on a ketogenic diet, if you have ketones in your body and I've given you an insulin clamp, you are going to be insulin resistant. That's normal physiology. It's not pathological. If you add fruit, you add honey within a few days, the train track shift, you're right back on the track, right? You're right back on the glucose metabolism. But when you give these people seed oils, because we know that in a ketogenic diet, you give people oil, right? You give them either saturated fat, you give them polyunsaturated fat. When you give them polyunsaturated fat, it really, I would say, the word I would use here is it destroys that physiology. And this is really interesting because I think this is how seed oils are harmful for humans. And this is what happens. When you eat seed oils, I think your fat cells also become inappropriately insulin sensitive, which means that all the fat gets shoved into your fat cells, right? So all the fat, all the glucose gets shoved into your fat cells and they grow and grow and grow. And we know very, very clearly now, I don't know why more people don't talk about this, at the root of insulin resistance is not excess sugar. The root of insulin resistance is broken fat cells, broken fat cells that can't divide. So there's hypertrophy, which is the growth of the fat cell, versus hyperplasia, the division of the fat cell. And there are so many articles out there now showing that in an insulin-resistant, pathological insulin-resistant state, I probably should say metabolic dysfunction, in that state, fat cells can't divide. They just grow and grow and grow, like that guy from Monty Python that just gets super fat and then puts the last thing on his tongue and he explodes, right? Your fat cells are just at the point of bursting and they release inflammatory mediators, they release lip lipokines like palmitic acid, palmitate in the blood like crazy. They're telling you, become insulin resistant, become insulin resistant, we are stuffed full of substrate. And I believe that is a slow process that happens because these seed oils are gradually, gradually sneaking open the door to the fat cells and just shoving more stuff in them. And eventually they get metabolically broken. But we see that in this ketogenic study. It's a little technical, but you should be insulin resistant on a ketogenic diet. And when you give someone seed oils, they become more insulin sensitive. So you know what's happening is the glucose is going in places where it's not supposed to go. Yeah. So as a fat cell is going through hypertrophy, is there sort of a proverbial line in which it explodes or is just when a fat's like in in the presence of excess energy and nutrients in general where a fat cell is growing in this particular case does just this the sheer hypertrophy of a fat cell release this so if someone is going through a period where they're gaining weight uh, even if it's a small degree is this still happening yeah it is i mean you so can see it with your insulin sensitivity you know you'll see the fasting insulin yeah. rise you'll see it and if you measured non-esterified fatty acids in the blood, you start to see those creep up, you know, free fatty acids in the blood, all that stuff starts to creep up um, and it, it breaks the metabolism. It's super interesting, but yeah, it all starts yeah. with the fat cell and you don't want to break the fat cell, which means you want the fat cell. So there's differences in terms of what you want here, right? You actually want that fat cell to be insulin resistant. You want insulin resistant fat cells and you want insulin sensitive muscles most of the time. And the way you do that is by eating saturated fat, generally speaking, and avoiding these seed oils, which won't, won't break them. So yeah, it's quite interesting physiology. Uh, yeah. So with seed oils, and this is an honest question, it does not mean to be inflammatory. I'm genuinely curious because I talked to the liver king about this too. And granted, I mean, take it for what it's worth. I mean, but when we're looking at like from a, a hunter-gatherer standpoint, uh, if you came across some naturally occurring nuts or seeds, would you 
would you be opposed to that since it's not a concentrated amount of refined seed oils and a concentrated amount of seed oils? But if someone, you know, in a hunter-gatherer sense found some nuts or found some seeds, granted, I mean, I know there's nuancy stuff there, but let's just say colloquially, uh, would it be a would it be a bad thing in a small amount? It's it's probably not a bad thing in a small amount. There is a threshold, right? And if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes across the world, uh, it seems to be about two to three percent of their calories are from linoleic acid, and this includes occasional probably nuts and seeds, and then there's a little bit of linoleic acid and animal fat. There's a well-known tribe in South Africa called the Ikung. They have like an upside-down exclamation part, and then Kung, the Kung San, um, and they have a they they do eat a lot of these mongongo nuts. But if you look at them in terms of their linoleic acid content and some of the parameters, it probably isn't the best thing. And there's a lot of theory around this. People will say like, well, look at the Ikung. They eat tons of mongongo nuts throughout the year. They eat mongongo nuts also because their hunting grounds have been destroyed and they're just trying to survive as humans. Um, and so a lot of these hunter-gatherers, it's like the Hadza are the same way. Um, I really want to go visit the Ikung. I haven't been there yet. They had closed all of those countries when I was traveling in Africa. But you know, the, the Hadza hunting grounds are being imposed upon. And so when I was with the Hadza, they didn't eat a single nut. They didn't eat a single seed. They didn't have any interest in that. They're, they're much lower caloric density. They're much more work. And a lot of people don't understand, like almonds are toxic in nature. We've hybridized them. They contain cyanide, you know? Mongongo nuts, okay, sort of non-toxic and they can eat them, but are they their preferred food? I would say my suspicion would be if their hunting grounds were available, were, were plentiful, were fecund, and they could actually go and hunt big animals, they wouldn't be as interested in these mongongo nuts. But I'd have to go ask them. Maybe I'm wrong about that. So yeah. yeah, I mean, to answer your question, if I'm starving and I can get like a wild nut that, uh, that I can eat, I'm probably going to eat it. But it's, it's a lot of work to like crack one nut and then how do you detoxify it? You know, egg corns, they're, they're a pain in the and you have to cook them and like soak them because of the tannins. Like a lot of these things are not as available as humans imagine. You know, pine nuts, for instance, like you have to grind the pine cones and like one pine nut is really hard to get out of a pine cone. I was watching a documentary, Happy People by Werner Herzog, and they will go and collect the pine cones. And then they, they'll, they'll literally have to like grind the pine cones with uh, this, this, this machine. And then they have to sift all the pine notes, nuts out. It's like, wow. Uh, this is a lot yeah. of work to get like a little bit of food. Like, yeah, you might use it in a survival yeah. situation, but I do think that, um, again, there's a lot of evidence that, that suggests that if you push that linoleic acid level too high, then fat cells start to break and humans start to go the wrong direction. It's reversible, right? But it can go the wrong direction yeah. if we press it there. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, really, it's fascinating to hear you say that. And then like, when we come back to the polyunsaturated fatty acid conversation, um, is this, does the same apply for, let's say I went, I found a freshwater lake and I found a beautiful trout or something like that. It had a fair bit of polyunsaturated fatty acid in it, but it wasn't coming from a seed oil. Would, would that have a similar effect or is it different? See, that's, that's usually omega-3, right? So then you're looking at uh, EPA versus DHA and linoleic acid. So there's a really interesting part of human physiology that um, 18 carbon fatty acids uh, are not metabolized the same as long chain fatty acids, anything over 20 or 22 carbons. So 20, 22 carbons get metabolized in the peroxisomes, I believe first. So there's some differences in the chain length of those things. There's something special about 18 carbons in a linoleic acid molecule that looks, that just messes up our biochemistry. You get longer chain 
uh, fatty acids, they don't appear to be quite as harmful for humans. In the case of EPA and DHA, those look to be beneficial for humans, but I would differ with the mainstream nutritional pundits who suggest that more is always better. There's good evidence from a um, uh, four studies that were done, and this, the review of these four studies uh, on seed oils were published in JAMA. Um, doses of two to four grams of fish oil per day were associated with increased rates of atrial fibrillation. So I think that a little bit, a moderate amount of omega-3 fatty acids is fine for humans, but if you are taking lots of seed oil, of, excuse me, fish oil, uh, excess omega-3s can also be harmful for humans. So I think um, a little bit of omega-3 is fine. Again, egg yolks, uh, muscle meat with fat on it from a grass-fed, grass-finished animal is gonna have omega-3s. I actually am not a fan of much fish today because it's contaminated with heavy metals and microplastics. Yeah. That's why I said lake. Yeah, yeah. Well, even that. <laughs> Did you see the recent, this is, again, yeah. this is observational study. There was recently an observational study came out. There was so much cognitive dissonance around this and it showed that fish consumption was associated with increased rates of melanoma. And it was just like, of course it is. Yeah, it's observational. We can't draw causative inference, but PCBs, heavy metals, microplastics, like this is not a good thing. And yet most of- yeah the United States would say that salmon is healthier than steak. It's like, what are, what are we basing that on? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe a hundred years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a different situation. Yeah. And even then I would, yeah, it, I would, I would take a steak over a salmon a hundred years ago, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to get a big animal. Yeah, for sure. If you're going to get a big, that's true. That's a fair point. Yeah. A big yeah. animal with fat. That's a fair point. And, yeah. Way more fat. I mean, most salmon is really lean. Um, it, yeah. It's, that's that's the funny yeah when you get the farm raised crap it's pumped full of fat and it looks you know it's a completely different ball game from a traditionally wild caught sake you can tell there's barely any fat barely on it, any know? fat it's on a sake yeah. yeah and you'd have to get a big animal even wild deer doesn't have that much fat you have to like really if you've ever hunted anyone that's hunted knows that there's fat around the kidneys on the deer there's actually fat behind the eyeballs all of this would have been eaten and the brain is full of fat the bone marrow we would have gotten all that fat is so precious in nature so you think that it's less of an omega-6, omega-3 ratio problem and more a signaling issue and kind of, uh, you know, because I've seen there's there's various people that are even in the ketogenic community that have done a little bit of a backflip on not necessarily the seed oils piece, because I think there's still a lot of, most people that I talk to in the ketogenic community are still large, well, I shouldn't say that, people that I guess are like-minded feel, okay, yeah, excess seed oils definitely are a problem. And A, the rancidity, and, and now this is interesting as sort of the signaling process, you know, from an omega-6 standpoint, you know, omega-6s that we might get from meat and things like that are not necessarily a problem. So do you think it's not so much the omega-6s that are the issue? It's more so what you're describing as far as the uh, uh, CB1 receptor and whatnot? Um, I, I think the omega-6s are the issue. It's just the absolute amount of omega-6 that's the problem. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want people to overeat omega-3s either. I don't, I think the ratio is a red herring and it's distracting. Um, I think that we see in the literature that the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is valuable because so many people are just over-consuming omega-6s that that shared uh, desaturation elongase pathway between the omega-6 and the omega-3 is inhibited because it's gummed up by the omega-6s. So you have to give people omega-3s because they can't make any EPA or DHA from alpha-linolenic acid. Um, and so that's a problem because there's also alpha-linolenic acid in muscle, in like fat on a cow. And so there's EPA, DHA preform, but there's also ALA. And your body can move 
along those pathways and interconvert those fatty acids however it really needs to when there's not excess omega-6. And I think there's an evolutionary precedent here that we are absolutely just overloading that omega-6 side of the pathway. It uses the same enzymes. And so you see a benefit to omega-3, but I think that's just because it's giving people EPA and DHA that they can't actually make otherwise. I don't think omega-3 in itself is a panacea. I think you need to get rid of the omega-6s and then your body will make all the omega-3s it needs. And just a small amount of omega-3 I think is ideal for humans. I think a lot of people are over consuming omega-3s. Yeah, I could see that too. I'm starting to do a little bit of a backflip on that myself. And, you know, I just pulled some interesting research uh, just on, on the link between excess omega-3s and even depression, which is quite interesting. You start looking at that. So there's uh, definitely in some alignment there. There's, okay, I, what I, we've already gone over an hour, but this is such good stuff. I want to keep going for a little bit because yeah. uh, there's a couple of things that, well, I want to come back to the fasting thing. Do you still play around with fasting? Uh, do you still mess around with it or is it not much of a priority for it's you? It's not really a priority for me, but I do end up having a little bit of a quote fasting window every day, but it's, it's much less than most people would, would be impressed by. Um, it's four, <laughs> it's four 30 here in Costa Rica right now. And when we get off the phone, I'm going to eat dinner. So I'll probably finish dinner by five 30. Um, and then my first amount of food in the morning will probably be around 6 AM. So tonight I'm only going to get 12 and a half hours. Um, but some days it's 13 hours. A lot of days I like to eat early and even finish eating by five. And then usually my first food is six or six 30 before I go surf. Um, so I would say 12 to 13 hours is my quote unquote fasting window. I think most people wouldn't even consider that a fasting window, but what I think about for myself is optimizing sleep. And so I don't want to eat uh, within three hours of going to sleep. Here in Costa Rica, I'm at the equator. So it's always about 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark. So it gets dark around six o'clock every single day of the whole year. So I go to sleep yeah. early. I get up early because the sun also comes up at 5, 5.30 every single day. Um, and it's time to go surf. So when it's awake, when the sun comes up, I get up, which means I go to sleep early, which means my dinner is eaten earlier in the evening. So that's about it. And I don't, um, yeah. yeah, I don't worry about it a whole lot no, anymore. It's interesting. Yeah. I think I have other yeah, things that are stressors. Yeah, uh, totally, totally get that. Yeah. And it's, it's like when you look at, even when I'm not fasting, I try to abide by somewhat of an ETRF, you know, where it's like, I, I'm like, if I'm, if I'm going to fast at this point, I still mess around. I always shift my fasting windows around. So I'm experiencing the quote unquote benefits of a fast at different times of the day, whenever I fast, right? There's no structured fasting eating window for me anymore. It's, you know what? I'm not hungry. I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for 18 hours. Screw it. Whatever. Okay. That means I'm breaking my fast at 4 PM. That means I'm breaking my fast at 11 AM. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Does it? But when I, well, it's interesting. I mean, cause either way I still abide by, and there's one of my favorite studies of all time. And I reference it a lot as a BMC medical genomics study, uh, talking about the fact that you, as far as what is expressed and as far as insulin sensitivity in the fat versus the muscle, yeah, you can get away with eating more in the morning than you can in the evening, generally speaking. Now that's going to vary depending on different phenotypes and different people and how they exercise and how they move. So I try to get 50% or so of my calories earlier in the day. And then I taper as the day goes on, usually eat a lighter dinner. And that's just how I sleep better. And that's just what seems to function for me. It may or may not be the right or wrong way, but it's, uh, I'm seeing a lot of the evidence with, at least with fasting pointing towards ETRF as being marginally better than say, just skipping breakfast. And it probably has to do with the fact that people that are willing to do ETRF are more cognitively aware and using fasting as a tool 
versus people that maybe do intermittent fasting and just skip breakfast. They do it because it's easy to do. Uh, and they're not necessarily, they're just abiding by it, right? Whereas someone that's consciously, it takes effort to skip dinner. It doesn't take that much effort to skip breakfast. Let's be real. And it's, uh, a, so at least that's my take on it, right? No, I think that, um, I think you have to really protect your sleep. And if, if your fasting practice is impinging, is impinging on your sleep by yeah. causing you to go, I'm eating from noon to eight, then you go to sleep at 10. I mean, or you try to go sleep at nine. I mean, eating at eight o'clock is pretty late for most people. I mean, I guess if you eat at eight o'clock and then you're going to sleep at 11 o'clock at night, maybe you, you, I guess you get three hours before you go to sleep then, but still it's, it's, but, but even that, then, man, I mean, you're looking at, you know, PER one and BMAL one and all these things that you're, you're messing up by eating. And, and again, people will poke holes and get pissed off at me about this, but I mean, I, I don't think that eating consistently after the sun goes down is a very good thing. I, I would agree with you. It, it makes sense. It makes sense to me yeah. too. And I think that that's, yeah. that's the way to do it. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't want to over fast for myself. Like I'm in a phase of my life where I'm trying to maximize testosterone and maximize athletic performance for surfing. And, um, you know, I, I would love to have more debates with the longevity community. And, you know, I don't really, I'm not really convinced that this, uh, that this promise of incredible longevity will come from caloric restriction or limitation of protein or, or, you know, I must intermittent fast every day. I just don't think that that's, that's necessary for us as humans. I haven't seen anything that's really convincing for it, but I do know that, um, my inflammation is extremely low. I just did a blood work review on my podcast. My HSCRP was 0.5. My fasting insulin is really low. You know, my IGF one is uh, one half of a standard deviation below the mean. So my fasting IGF one is probably lower than David Sinclair's IGF one. And I know that I feel good every day, um, when I go surf and I have good muscle mass and good libido and good sleep. And I'm like, I know those things are metrics that I can lean on today. I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sacrifice my quality of life right now for some empty promise of longevity long-term. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think it's actually even true. Well, and the, the fear, the concern that I have with fasting, and this is coming from someone that, okay, I enjoy fasting. And I always explain to people that, you know, you can rain on my parade as much as you want. I, en I enjoy it. And I continue to do it because I enjoy it, not because I'm seeking one specific thing. And, uh, but the moment that I notice that my cortisol is out of whack or my sleep is gone, I take a break and you have to be, you have to keep a wolf at the door for that. And that's just the way that it goes. And when it comes down to, even the longevity equations, like we're, we're talking just about that, you know, you are also a very active person and that's a whole separate discussion, right? Like that's a, an uncomfortable conversation to have with people is that they need to be active and that the more active you are. And even if we did want to back up and have a very basic AMPK discussion, you know, with, with the bulk of the nutrition community, um, at the end of the day, yes, being active, if, if you put yourself in a deficit nutritionally, you put yourself in a deficit by being active, you know, good on you for both, whatever. Okay. But being active, the, the fear though, I go back to the fear or concern that I have with fasting is that it implies that we can do all this stuff by restricting what we eat. And it almost gives people a license to not move as much. And that's what I want to be very careful of. And I've got, I've received lots of hate because good. I fast and I still move. Yeah. I still move like an animal, right? Like I, I fast, I'll fast for 16 hours and then I'll go deadlift 465. Like wh what's the problem with that? I still think that movement is critical and I try to put things out. And it doesn't mean that everyone should go do that. I don't want everyone to go deadlift. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. My point is that 
I really think that being active is very important, whether you are fasting or not. And if fasting becomes your license to say, oh, I'm going to restrict my calories so much by doing this fast that I'm not going to move. I mean, then the body has no choice but to start catabolizing because if you don't use it, you lose it. It's that simple. So at least that's my take on it, right? It's it is what it is. Lean, lean muscle mass is pretty important, you know, and um, a lot of the people in the longevity community that would say you need to do extreme amounts of intermittent fasting, fasting or protein limitation don't have a lot of lean muscle mass. So it's like, what's, what's, what are you doing with, you know, I don't understand it. Um, it's clearly being catabolized. And, and some of them have even been frank about the fact that their hormones are not great. It's like, why would we listen to this? Yeah, I, dude, I don't, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. With so, great, I mean, I'm sure they're very well intentioned. I've, I've opened a few videos with this because I'm like, people need to understand this. Like fasting is like Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. If you're going to do this, you also need to be making sure you're meeting your protein requirements. You need to make sure this stuff because yes, fasting has benefits certainly, but you also need to eat. <laughs> so it's uh, and you, know, you need to be paying attention to that. Yeah. I think you could and say the same thing about keto, need- you know, that's how I feel about keto too. True. It's like, absolutely be responsible. Like know that you're not, you know, leading just, you know, like blindly, um, you know, just doing something because, um, and, and, and ignoring potentially negative effects uh, as it, as it continues long-term. Yeah. No, totally, man. And so I want to wrap up with one more of a fun question. Uh, you've probably been asked this one before, but if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> it's so hard, man. I, I can't answer it because I, I think that the first, like, you know, it's like, look, we talked about organs and the importance of getting organs. Like I think liver, even, even half an ounce or an ounce of liver will change your life and a, a day. And I don't think people need to have a lot of liver, but that's just like, you know, I don't want to be without my liver, but I only need half an ounce a day, whether I'm getting it fresh or I'm getting it desiccated, you know, like we make it hard in soil, like the supplements, whatever you need to get half an ounce of liver a day, but that's not enough. I wouldn't just want to eat half an ounce of liver a day. And then I think like, well, then I would eat like a tomahawk ribeye or a cowboy ribeye every day, but that's just, I know that's just muscle meat. And then I'm not getting my organs and then I'm not getting my fruit. And then I think like, well, you know, (laughs) I, I'm actually arriving at the answer to your question now as, I, as I'm talking out loud. I, I realize the answer and I'll get there. But then I think like, man, I had a really good papaya today, but I don't just want to be a fruitarian because I know what you look like if you're a fruitarian, right? But if I had to eat one food for the rest of my life, the, I think that the most enjoyable thing that I eat is like raw dairy. So if, you're, if you put me in a corner, it would probably be cream. It would be like freaking the fattiest raw dairy cream that I could get. And, uh, but again, I don't, I don't just want to do that. Right. Because I want to, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, like, I think that of all the foods, I think raw cream is, is so good. And if you put a little bit of honey in there, it just destroys, it just crushes. And then if I put a little, a few raw egg yolks, but now I'm up to like three foods. So you get it. Yeah, no, I totally, totally, man. I, but I mean, I will say I've become over the last year, like such a big fan of some really good kefir as oh, well. Man. So I feel like that is like a little bit of an acquired taste for people that aren't really accustomed to it. I've always kind of liked the tanginess of it anyway, but yeah, that is an awesome, I was expecting you to say eggs, but uh, you know, as, as like one food that you might be able to get, but there's so, there's a lot of ambiguity with eggs in general. Like it's, it's, but yeah, it's interesting. People ask me that all the time and I end up giving a wraparound answer as well. It's just, it's difficult. I mean, eggs is, eggs is probably a close second, you know, eggs is, eggs are a close second. 
Um, I've, I tell you this, I found that when I eat a lot of egg whites, I don't feel great. And I know that some people react to albumin and egg whites. And I don't know if I'm just not getting good quality eggs because they're so hard to get good quality eggs. Like if I had, if I had a chicken farm and they were just the wildest chickens in the world and they were eating bugs and worms and lizards and I was giving them scraps, then those, those, those eggs might be great. You know, that might be like the perfect yeah. food, but I've just had such, uh, I just, I guess I could, I mean, egg yolks are pretty close to cream in my opinion. It's just, uh, I like the, I like the cream a little more, but I put the egg yolks in the cream. Yeah, totally, man. Well, we'll wrap it up. But if anyone, you know, people that are still on this video, if there's comments for a follow-up interview with Paul, just put them down below in the comment section. Cause I know that, uh, a lot of people are gonna get some serious value out of this video and we can dive a lot deeper. And I just got to say on a personal level, I'm really impressed with, um, where you've come for what it's worth, just your, your, how you're explaining things and just your ability to admit where you've grown and admit where you're wrong. I've, you know, been coming to the same thing. And I think as a brand, as a content creator, sometimes you catch some flack for it, but in the grand scheme of things, the respect is there for that. And yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate those words and I'll, I'll mirror them back to you. I totally appreciate you as a human. I hope we get to eat a steak at some point in the future and we can get you down to Costa Rica. So we get you a little more tan. <laughs> teach me, teach me oh, how to bro, surf and so then you good. come up to the mountains where I'm at and I'll, uh, and, uh, we can do some rock climbing. Absolutely here, so brother. We'll, Absolutely. We'll, we'll, yeah, man. Thanks. I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Run on. Where can people find you? Uh, at, in case they haven't at, found at carnivore MD 2.0 on Instagram, just look up carnivore MD, wherever you want to be. It's YouTube. Yeah. You'll find me. All right, man. So we'll have you back on here soon. And, uh, yeah, again, Go check out Paul, check out some of his work. And if you guys want him back for a round two, let me know in the comments below. Thanks, man. Thank you, brother.